0: Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. How you guys doing? We're doing good. Let's get our Bibles out. John chapter 7 tonight. We are part, some part in our new series, Life to the Full um, really excited the, today's already been incredible at our first three gatherings, excited for what God's going to do tonight, because we all know 5 p.m. is where it's at, right? 5 p.m., the best gathering we've got. Um, so be, before we dive into John chapter 7, quick question for you, how many of you guys love a good movie, a good book with a plot twist? You're like, I did not see that coming, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, that just totally blew my mind. Uh, any, can anyone, anything come to mind? Any of you got just favorite like shows, movies? You're like, I didn't. Which one? Yeah, yeah. What? Coco. <laughs> come on, so good. I was like just googling this week like best plot twists of all time. Number one on multiple lists, of course. Star Wars Episode Four, Empire Strikes Back. Right, released 1980. Luke, I am your. Father, right? Everyone's like, "Whoa!" Did not see that coming. And here's what's great about a plot twist: not only does it change the ending of the movie, it changes the beginning. You have to go back and you have to re-watch the movie, re-read the book. You have to rethink about the story in light of what you just learned. I want to let you know what we're going to be talking about tonight is maybe one of the greatest plot twists in human history. When Jesus shows up and announces who he is, it doesn't only change the way we think about the future, it changes how we think about the past. We have to read the Old Testament completely different because we realize that so much of what we thought we knew is now different in light of who Jesus is. And this is what's happening tonight in John chapter 7. And um, if you were here last week, we read John chapter 5, and we're, we're skipping quite a bit. We're going we're gonna to do John 6 next week, but the reason we're doing chapter five and seven together is because although they're different feasts and they're different moments, it's the same dialogue. It's the same discourse that Jesus is having on his own authority. If you remember that right now the Jewish leaders are trying to kill him because of his claim that he has equal authority with God which, in the, in again, in a conservative Jewish religious mindset, would have deserved death. And so they are actively trying to kill him. Well, this is now six months later, different feasts, same people are angry at him for the same reasons. And we're gonna pick up at the very end of chapter seven where Jesus makes this radical announcement. So we're gonna pick up in verse 37, and then we're gonna break it apart a little bit. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he's the Messiah, the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived, which as we know he did? And verse 43 is is one I want us to pay attention to. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So a couple of questions we're going to hopefully answer today uh, in the next 30, 40 minutes. Number one is we notice that after Jesus makes this proclamation that it splits the crowd. And so one of the questions we have to ask tonight is who is Jesus? Who is he claiming to be? And what kind of weight does that carry in our life? Which kind of leads into the second question was, what does that mean for us? How do we respond in uh, in an accurate way based on what Jesus had just said? Um, If you're taking notes tonight, uh, just two points we're gonna be covering. Number one, is we're going to be talking about the fulfillment of the festival and that Jesus points himself kind of at the center of. And secondly, as a result of Jesus being the fulfillment, we now have the flow of the Holy Spirit uh, coming out of us. So we're going to be looking at these two different components in this story. But let's begin with the first, the fulfillment of a festival. Um, if you look at John seven thirty-seven, there's this kind of throwaway line that bet you do not have underlined in your Bible. It says this, On the last and greatest day of the festival... Well, we have to pause right there before we read anything else because that phrase is loaded with meaning. In the same way, if I were to ask you, um, if I were to say the phrase, the Christmas season, how many thousands of thoughts come to your mind right now? Just Just let your mind go there. The Christmas season. Go ahead. Kenny G starts playing in your mind right now. Eggnogs on your tongue, right? You're, there's a red cup in your hand. There's a turtleneck you're wearing. I mean, like, there's just this Christmas lights all around. Like, you're just kind of in, immediately, you're just like, wow, this means so much. And all I said was the Christmas season. And immediately, this means uh, an immense amount of context, an immense amount of nostalgia. And then, if I were to take it a, a step further, and if I said Christmas morning, right? A whole nother layer of activities, right? Of little kids coming down with, with unbrushed hair and rushing to the Christmas tree and can't, not waiting uh, to open up their presents, right? And in our house, there's monkey bread that's baking and it smells so good. And we read the Christmas story. Um, Christmas Eve, we'll watch Charlie Brown Christmas and exchange one present. There's all sorts of the traditions and rituals and heritage and deep nostalgia wrapped around. And all I was talking about was Christmas morning. So when Jesus, or when John, the author, opens up with this line, on the last and greatest day of the festival, we can't just read that without understanding that this has deep, deep meaning and context for everyone who would be hearing this. The problem is it, has, it totally goes right over our head. We read this line and like, that doesn't really mean much to us at all. Um, primarily because we're not Jewish, we don't celebrate the Jewish holidays, um, unless unless we're an Orthodox practicing Jew, and we don't celebrate them the way they did 2000 years ago. But everything Jesus is about to say hinges on this sentence, it is the last and greatest day of the festival. So if you're willing with me, let's go backwards 2,000 years and let's begin to start painting the picture of what this festival looked like, what it felt like, the smells, the sounds. But here's the thing, this is not a history lesson. Don't just, just don't take a bunch of no and learn a bunch of facts. I want us to live into this moment. As I describe this festival, could we all go there together and imagine what this would be like? So we learn in the beginning of chapter 7 what festivals is. This is the festival called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of, not booze, okay, different festival. Um, That's Uh, (laughs) Oktoberfest. This actually takes place in October, interestingly enough. Uh, Booths, T-H, or the Feast of Tabernacles, Um, and in the Jewish tradition, it's called Sakat, Sakat is a really fabulous holiday. In in ancient Jewish literature, it is called the season of our joy. So if you think of your favorite holiday, the most joyous holiday, this was Sakat for the ancient Jewish people, the Feast of Tabernacles. And the reason why this was such a joyous um, celebration is really twofold. Number one, it comes directly after the Day of Atonement. So their sins are forgiven. Their conscience is clean. And so when they come, it's not to seek forgiveness. It's already being forgiven. And so there is this joy deep within their bones. Secondly, it's harvest time. It's a time where they're celebrating the goodness of God throughout the year in this agrarian culture. And there's three main rituals that took place in Saka, or the Feast of Tabernacles, that really mean a lot to what we're about to be reading later. The first one is that there are water rituals happening during this feast. It's a week-long feast. And every single day, the priest would go leave Jerusalem and go about a mile south down to the pool of Siloam. They'd fill up basins with water, and there'd be this massive processional as they'd go back up to Jerusalem, and they would be singing Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, and these, these beautiful songs would be lifted up, and as they got up to the gate, They would pour water over the altar. And the water represented two things. Number one, it was thanking God for the rain that came in the previous year, and it was a request for more rain the next year. Remember, this is a farming community in the desert no water, which is a high likelihood, means no crops, which means that there's no profitability, no sustainability, and the, the human flourishing is greatly at risk. So water is everything, which is why central to this feast would be Isaiah 12:3 that they would read. It says, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. So they would come to the spring. They'd draw out water. They'd come and spill it over the altar, and they'd do this every single day. Well, at night, um, they would have this second ritual, which is the ritual of illumination. Illumination is they would have these massive candelabras, almost imagine like a gigantic menorah. And they would put them in the court of women, so it meant that men and women could come and worship in this place, and they would light them with oil, kind of the young Levites would light them up, um, and they would... Um, and everyone would crowd into this court. Now keep in mind, 300,000 people plus would show up for this festival. So you think Coachella's crazy. You guys have never been to Sakat. I mean, like, it's insane. So they would light up these... Um, these the, these candelabras, and they would begin to dance. They would begin to have this Levitical band literally play trumpets and shofars. Um, there's even one historian that um, cites Gamaliel, who was the Apostle Paul's rabbi he trained under, that could actually juggle eight flaming torches at one time. And this is crazy. And and so keep in mind. So everyone is dancing and shouting. There's water being pouring, poured. Poured. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, there's there's um, there's water that's being poured over that. There's um, the candelabbers are being lit. Everyone is dancing. Gamaliel's throwing torches. It's a great time. The third ritual that takes place in this, um, and maybe one of the most distinctive, is the ritual of the sakat. And sakat are tents or tabernacles that would be built. Um, They'd be built on the first day and they'd be taken down on the eighth day. And these were built, and there's all sorts of rules built around how you could build this certain structure. And it was essentially an awful structure. And so you build it with kind of wood that was falling apart, palm branches. You had to leave it open to the elements at some level. So if it rained, it would rain on you. Um, wind would come in. And the reason for this is it would remind them of the children of Israel wandering in the desert. desert. And more importantly, it would remind them that God is their shelter. He is their safe shelter. And so all of these rituals played a deep part in this incredibly joyful celebration. One of the readings that they would um, read on the first day, which I think bears a lot of significance because it shows how important this festival was, was Zechariah 14, Verse 16 says, Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. If any of the people peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, listen, they will have no rain. So deep within the Jewish conscience is if we don't go and celebrate this, we can expect no rain for our crops. And so guess what happens? It is the most well-attended festival in Jewish history. Everyone comes and everyone's building tents, right? It's like glamping. Like everyone's there building fire pits. They're going and like celebrating and dancing at night. They're having these amazing water rituals in the morning. Um, And I just want to read you one other verse that they would read from. This is Isaiah 55, verses one through three. And it says this, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Now listen to this last line. I will make, future tense, an everlasting covenant with you my faithful love promised to David. So one of the deepest joys of the celebration was anticipation of a new covenant. Notice that this is Isaiah, a few hundred years written before, and there is this promise that there will be an everlasting covenant. Now, every covenant up to this point, there's five or six, depending how you read the Old Testament, were conditional agreements that the covenant would last as long as the the people of God carried up their end of the bargain. Well, Ezekiel and Isaiah would start prophesying about a new covenant that would be made that would be eternal, meaning no matter what, this covenant would last. And so this is one of the, the prophecies that they would read during the Feast of Tabernacles, is that there's a new covenant coming that's going to be an everlasting one. Keep in mind they are living in the wake of a broken covenant because they were unfaithful to God. They're underneath the Roman rule simply because they did not keep up their end of the bargain in that relational agreement called the covenant. And so they long for this new covenant that God is bringing. So just quick recap, three themes of this, um, of this festival. Number one, celebration. Number two is dependence on God for future reign and shelter. And number three is hope that God is restoring to them a new covenant but notice, it doesn't just say it's the Feast of Tabernacles. It says it's the last day of the feast. Now, if you thought the feast was crazy, wait till you hear about the last day. The last day is where it's at. This is what it all builds up to and crescendos on the seventh day. So the priest would take a golden um, It's called a flagon, it's kind of a container of water. They'd go down to the Pool of Siloam and everyone would gather. They'd fill it up with water and they would start moving up the streets, up to the Temple Mount. And everyone behind them would be singing these songs. And once they got up, this was literally the culmination, the high point of the whole festival. They would get up there, everyone would be surrounding. And the Jewish men on one hand would hold these makeshift rattles made with palm branches um, in one hand with myrtle twigs and willows and on the left hand they would hold citrus fruit and they would wait silently and as the high priest came with the golden flagon, and he poured it over the altar, everyone would begin to rattle their branches, squeeze the citrus. You can imagine the sound and the smell that's happening in this moment. And in unison, all the people three times would shout, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. I mean, can you imagine 300,000 people shouting at the top of their lungs with the the scent of citrus and the rattling of leaves around them, give thanks to the Lord. Now, this whole point is led up to this moment. Everyone's energy is high. This is all going on. And I want you to listen to this verse one more time. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, scholars think at this exact moment, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Do you see what Jesus just did here in this moment? I mean, this is, this is the festival for the Jewish people. It's the moment, the seventh and the greatest day, and they're coming. They've just spilled water over this altar, and Jesus stands up in a loud voice in front of 300,000 people, whoever could hear him with an earshot, and in the midst of all the noise, shouts out that, anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. I mean, what an audacious and provocative statement for this nomadic Jewish rabbi from Nazareth to stand up and say in the middle of such a holy moment, which is why D.A. Carson, in his commentary, says, in general terms, then Jesus' pronouncement is clear. He is the fulfillment of all that the Feast of Tabernacles anticipated. If Isaiah could invite the thirsty to drink from the waters, Jesus announces that he is the one who can provide. The waters. This is like a mic drop moment in Jesus's ministry. I mean, people are immediately are divided. One side, they're like, he's the one. He's the, the bringer of the new covenant. And do you notice people say, he's the prophet, he's the Messiah, he's the one. And the other half says, you can't say that. You, all the living water comes from you, It's water that we're dependent on as a people to sustain us. Jesus gets up there and says, It all comes back to me. In in general terms, let's fast forward 2,000 years in this room right now. What Jesus would say is, Your deepest desires, your biggest dreams, your greatest cravings all can be fulfilled in Him. What a bold statement. And I don't know what they are for you. I don't know what your deepest cravings and longings and desires are, but if we're reading this correctly, Jesus would stand up in the high point of your life and say, It all comes back to me. You want that relationship to fulfill you? I'll fulfill you. You want that promotion because you think it'll make you feel secure? I'll make you feel secure. I'm your provider. You you need that job to give you status or that relationship to give you popularity. I'll make you feel loved right now. You don't need any of that. Whatever that thing is in your life that you are driving towards, you're craving, Jesus wants to stand up in the middle of your high point of your own life and says, it's me. I'm the fulfillment of it. A.W. Tozer, who's one of my favorite authors, wrote a little book called The Pursuit of God. I'd highly recommend you guys um, pick it up or order it. And he says this in the book, he says, to seek God does not narrow one's life. Rather, it brings it to the level of highest possible fulfillment. And I I 100% agree with this. That the invitation of Jesus is that if we pursue him, if we answer this invitation, what is left with us is not a narrowing of life, but it is the highest possible fulfillment available for the human experience. And I know for some of you, that might be a lot to take in. You're like, I mean, like Jesus is cool and everything, but like there's a lot of other good things in my life too. Like, can I have Jesus and surfing and some hot yoga and like a nice salad? Like, can these, these things coexist together? And Jesus would say, not again, not that these things are bad. He, does, he doesn't condemn the festival. He just says, all of this points to me. Come to me and drink. I have the water of life. Remember, this is what he did with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. Same message, different context. It's me. I'm what you're looking for. I'm what you need. This time he just does it in front of 100,000 um, angry Jewish religious rulers who now want to kill him. But the message is the same. But here's what's amazing. And now, that's great. We could go home tonight and the sermon could be done, and like we're going to bed, like feeling great because Jesus is the fulfillment and He's available to us. But that's not where Jesus ends His sermon, which is, for me is fascinating. It's not Jesus said, I'm the point. Good. See you guys later. <laughs> he takes it a step further. And this is, to be honest, this is where it becomes a little more challenging and uncomfortable because now it involves us. Listen to what He says in verse 38. It says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So now he's shifted the water analogy from him being the fulfillment that you can come and drink from. And he says, living water is gonna flow from you. If you believe me. If you believe in the authority that I have, if I become the central focal point of your life and I become the fulfillment of all you are, a natural byproduct of that is there will be a living river flowing from your life. And we're gonna find out later. He's referencing the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's gonna flow from within you and it's going to change everything around you. Now, this phrase river of living water um, is kind of poetic, it's pretty, but it's, for them, it would have been much more of a concrete statement because he's actually referencing the actual stream that fills up the pool of Siloam. He's not just talking about a metaphor. For them, he's drawing upon their their imagination of something what they would have known very well. Now, the pool of Siloam is still there today. You can go look at it, I was just there in September. The pool of Siloam is fed into by one single spring. The spring is called the spring of Gahon. And the spring of Gahon is fascinating because it has not stopped in 3,000 years. It was discovered around the time of King David, and it was used to provide protection for his people within, the, within his walls. And it was carried on even to the time of Hezekiah, Um, a few generations later. And Hezekiah, in order to protect the water source because it was so valuable, he actually dug tunnels hundreds of feet underground from the spring that were fed into different pools that were within the city gates. Those tunnels are still there today and you can march right through them. And and as I'm there in September and I'm walking through this water, I'm thinking about this verse. There's this cold, pure, rushing water going around my feet, sometimes knee high, and that has not stopped flowing in 3,000 years. And Jesus would say, this will flow from you. The Holy Spirit's gonna flow like this from your life when you place your faith in me. Now, there is a little bit of an interesting theological debate that goes around this, around this term. And I'm not gonna give it a ton of time, but just a couple minutes because I think it bears um, mentioning Is the NIV translators what we just read um, quoted like that? There is living waters flowing from us. Now, the New American Standard Bible or some other um, Bible translations that are more word for word would translate it like this: If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That phrase, "from his innermost being," literally translated from his belly. Um, which is, again, where the Greco-Roman thought came from, where your like central nervous system was, your thought life came from like right here. So from your innermost person would flow living water. Well, that word his is debated on. Well, is the living water flowing from us or is it flowing from Christ? And the, the, the latter is what's called the Christological theory that living water doesn't actually flow, flow from us, it flows from Christ the, the problem with that, although I think it's a fine translation if you're just looking at word for word, is the context that follows it begins to start talking about the Holy Spirit that will come. And the Holy Spirit that comes later doesn't just land on Jesus because Jesus has already ascended up to the Father, sitting at the right hand of the Father and thrown in heaven interceding for us. So who's left the Holy Spirit inside of us? And so I think for us, now, but here's the beauty, I think that if you look at the, you scan all of the New Testament, I think you actually see evidence for both. Who does the living water flow from? Who's the source of it? Jesus Christ, absolutely. Who does it flow through? It flows through the Holy Spirit, through us, to the, to the world around us. So I just want to give you a few verses that would support really both of these claims, wherever you want to choose to translate this. I don't, actually don't think it matters too much in that the result is the same. But I want to give you a few verses of, of why I think these two things marry well. Galatians 2.19 says this, If I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. So if I'm asking the question, well, who does the water flow from, me or from Christ? The answer is Yes, like I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me, right? The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So I don't even live anymore. It's Christ living his life through me. Ezekiel hundreds of years uh, earlier in the Old Testament says it like this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. So here, even Ezekiel, 100 years before, says, I'm switching out your heart. And that, that heart transplant that you're going to be having is coming along with a new spirit inside of you. So where does the water come from? Yeah. It comes from Christ within us. We don't, it's not because we've decided to be rivers of living water everywhere we go. No, it's because we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, whose spirit now lives within us and it flows out of us. Um. And there's a couple more, just in case you don't believe me. Uh, Acts number Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And last one, Acts chapter 4, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So here's this reference again and again in the New Testament, how the Holy Spirit's going to come. We're hidden in Christ. We have union with Christ. And because of that union with Christ, there's something that flows out of us that is not of us, but it's of the Holy Spirit. And this is incredibly profound um, because this word flow in the Greek, what's flowing out of us, reo in the Greek, is also translated. It's kind of hard to translate because it's only used once in the New Testament. So you have to look at other Greek literature to To see how it's translated, but it's oftentimes translated overflow with. So it's not just something flowing out of us, it's something that overflows. And I love that because I think that answers the question and marries it too. Is something flowing out of us? Yeah, because it's overflowing us. It's because a different source is coming and filling us up. So even Ephesians 5.18 gives us the command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. What's interesting about that command is it is not a one-time happenstance. It is a continual verb in the tense that it's used in that syntax, meaning that we should never stop being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is an overflow. It's like the Gahon Spring that has not stopped flowing for thousands of years, that within us, as we're united in faith with Christ, as the living water, naturally his spirit within us is gonna overflow and living water is gonna be flowing from us. Now, if you're just like, so why do you keep talking about this? What's the point? Here's the point. Oftentimes we talk about the movement of the Holy Spirit within the confines of a church service. We think that the spirit of God moves when there's um, just a really great worship song you know, a halfway decent sermon, hypothetically. Um, Different, you know, there's these different moments of retreat or something like, oh man, the spirit of God is moving here. The problem is that's bad theology. According to this, the spring doesn't stop. The river doesn't stop flowing. It overflows, which means every single area of your life should be affected by this river. Everywhere you go. If, if, if the Gahon Spring is the analogy Jesus is using for this activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we should have a radically different interpretation of God's work in and through us. So how I want to end this evening is just to ask just kind of that simple question. If this is true, if Jesus is the focal point, the epicenter of, of all fulfillment of life, And now his spirit indwells within us and it's overflowing from us. What does this look like Monday through Saturday? What does this look like outside of church? Because that would be an accurate translation of how we respond to the claim that Jesus just made. So I'm gonna give you just three, this is not an exhaustive list. I'm just gonna give you three different layers, three different spaces where the Holy Spirit should be overflowing into. Number one, it's the people around us. Who should be the recipients of this living water that's flowing freely from us? It's the people around you. Some of you guys right now, you're like, oops. <laughs> people around me have, have a different kind of thing flowing from me, so like, it's my attitude, it's my exhaustion, it's my stress, it's my fear. Number two, it's, it's the work we do. The work we do should change because That is the majority of our waking hours is given over to our work. Now, let me clarify this. I'm not talking about where you get your paycheck from. I'm not talking about where you punch in and punch out. I'm talking about where you spend your energy. Is it taking care of a kid at 3 a.m.? Who's woken up? Is, is it, is it nanning, Is it going to school? Is it being a CEO of a company? Is it being an employee at, at the local coffee shop? I, I don't know what you'd qualify as your work, but I know it's more than your nine to five. It is what you put your energy and effort towards, hopefully for the flourishing of humanity. And that should be changed. If that's where we're spending the majority of our waking hours, you better believe that this stream should be overflowing into that. And number three, it's the culture we live in. We're not talking about a pool, a pond, or a lake here. We're talking about a stream and a river that's flowing out of us that does not stop. It continues to go. So I just wanna walk through these three spheres, if you will, that should be obvious spaces where the overflow of the Holy Spirit should be going. This living water should be reaching. Number one is, is just the people around us. I would love to read uh, just Galatians 5.22. It's a familiar passage. And Paul here uh, doesn't use the analogy of water. He uses the analogy of a tree. But similarly, as water, Jesus uses a spring. Tree, he's using a fruit. It's a byproduct of this. And so Galatians 5.22 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Listen to 24. Those who belong to Christ, right? There's that image again. We're linked up with the source. This case, it's a tree or a vine. In Jesus' case, it's a spring. It's a water source. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Meaning, if I'm just thinking about the people in my life, Right? Jen, my, my beautiful bride of 13 years, my four awesome rambunctious kids who are at home right now, probably watching American Idol. Um, they get a lot of my life. And the question I've been wrestling with this week is, what are they, or if what they're getting from me looks like the overflow of living water. I think about our amazing leadership team here. I think about the baristas that I see often. I think about my neighbors. Are they, when they interact with me, are they receiving living water? Now, I'm not making a case that all of a sudden, if you're introverted, you gotta be some sort of extroverted evangelist who just comes and just... No, I'm thinking about who God has wired you to be. How does that translate into living water, the Holy Spirit overflowing in your life based on how God's wired you to be? Uh, Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, has this brilliant quote, and and it's in the context of marriage, but I just wanna expand it just to the context of relationships because I I just think it's so good. He says this, you can only afford to be generous if you actually have some money in the bank to give. Some of you guys, that's like the notes you're taking tonight. you college students like, that's a good idea. I should have money in the bank. (laughs) In the same way, if your only source of love and meaning is your spouse, friend, neighbor, boss, or parent, then any time he or she fails you it will not just cause grief but a psychological cataclysm if however you know something of the work of the spirit in your life you have enough love in the bank to be generous to your spouse your friend neighbor boss parent even when you're not getting much affection respect or kindness at that moment this is brilliant How does this translate to real life? It looks like you have a different source. It looks like there's something else overflowing from your life than just you reacting to that person's bad day, short comment, or irritability. It looks like when your boss comes in and doesn't treat you fairly, rather than treating him or her back unfairly, you respond out of the overflow of the Holy Spirit. Rather than giving them what they deserve, you'll give them what Jesus has given you. It changes everything. It changes the people around us. Number two, this overflow of the Holy Spirit, this river flowing out of us, should change the work we do. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, you should be the best employees out there. You should be the best employer out there. The reason is because you're connected to living water. It changes everything, really on two basic levels. Number one, your motivation drastically changes because you know that your fulfillment isn't tied to your job. You get to add to human flourishing, not because you need it for your own significance or well being, but because God has changed you, and that's His mission and His agenda. But the second thing, which is filled with people like NT Wright, have books and books written about this is that if we believe the kingdom of God is here and now, if we believe that Jesus' ultimate goal of consummation is not us evacuating from earth, but bringing heaven to earth and setting up the new heaven, new earth right here, that changes how we think about work. Now, you might be like, well, how how does that make sense? Well, it means this. If Jesus is coming to redeem all things, we don't have to wait for him to come back to start. We can start now how we love people, how we work, how we buy and sell goods in a fair manner, how we think about the environment. All of those things are a part of God's economy. He's bringing back with him when he comes a second time. You can start now. And when you do, you are helping establish the kingdom of God right here, right now. Um, Amy, Amy Sherman in her book, Kingdom Calling, says it like this, Every faithful act of service, every honest labor to make the world a better place, which seemed to have been forever lost and forgotten in the rubble of history, will be seen on that day at the final resurrection to have contributed to the perfect fellowship of God's kingdom. All who committed their work and faithfulness to God will be by him raised up to share in the new age and will find that their labor was not lost." but that it has found its place in the completed. What a beautiful promise that we get to stand on, that God's kingdom is coming someday, but it can come now through us because we have the living water that flows. In, in Revelation 22, it says it flows from the throne of God. That's inside of us. It changes the work that we do. And lastly, it should change the culture we live in. Jesus being the fulfillment of all things and in our belief in that, the life it produces, the life of the spirit that it produces and overflows from our life should change culture. And the reason we had to bring this up is, is there's so much talk about how culture shapes us and changes us. And by the way I'm not I'm not the guy who's like anti-culture but I am a strong believer that if the Holy Spirit is inside of us we have the creator of the universe dwelling within us, overflowing within us, meaning that everywhere we go, the cities that we live in, the neighborhoods we inhabit should have somewhat of God's fingerprints and move on it simply by by us just saying yes to Jesus. Andy Crouch is is a brilliant author and his book, Culture Making, says it like this. I wonder what we Christians are known for in the world outside of churches, Are we known as critics, consumers, copiers, condemners of culture? I'm afraid so. Why aren't we known as cultivators, people who tend and nourish what is best in human culture, who do not hard and painstakingly work to preserve the best of what people before us have done? Why aren't we known as creators, People who dare to think and do something that has never been thought of or done before, something that makes the world more welcoming and thrilling and beautiful. We have living water flowing and overflowing out of us because of who Jesus is and his spirit inside of us. So this is what I would like for us to do. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up. And as they do, why don't you stand to your feet? Little, uh, little mental exercise before we dive into worship. I want you just for a moment to think about the week that's ahead of you. Um, some of you guys are like, "Please, no! I have like five more hours." <laughs> Kind of, t- kind of church is this? Um, anyways, um, go ahead, close your eyes. Just imagine, what's, what's ahead of you this week? What meetings? What work? What study? What assignments? What relationships? What phone calls? What's coming your way this week? And whatever is coming to your mind, first, I want you to ask the question, what would living water look like in that context? What would the overflow of God's Spirit How would that translate into your emails? How would that translate in your interactions with your neighbor? How would that translate when you're at the coffee shop? How would that translate in your, I mean, just think of whatever's coming to your mind right now. I'm I'm gonna believe that God's prompting you to think about that. Just rather than thinking like, I gotta change everything. No, no, no. This is a result of, right? This is a fruit of the Holy Spirit inside of you. But I do want us to have a healthy anticipation that things should not be the same. Man, I know, I know for me, I'm just thinking, I, I wanna interact with my kids, like living waters flowing right from the center of me. What is it for you? What, what is that thing that God's waking up, stirring in your heart, moving you into a new sense of, man, I, yeah, I want life, living water to flow into that. So we're going we're gonna to sing um, just a few lines from this song. And as we do, I'm going to ask that it would become a prayer. Don't, don't sing this as a sing-along. Don't sing it because you're supposed to. Make this your prayer, that God would awaken your heart. He would awaken this city. He would pour out His Spirit in a fresh and powerful new way. Lord, we just come to you right now. and We are first and foremost thankful. God, we're thankful that the water we crave, the things we crave, the desires we have can all point to you. So Jesus, we come to you. Drink deep of the things of you. Holy Spirit, would you come fall afresh right now. Fill every single heart to overflowing. That every single person as they leave this place would have living water flowing from the center of who they are to everyone in their path, to the culture they live in, to the work that they do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship it. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com.